Hey there, everybody. This is Nate Carney, host of Belgian Beer Quest. Please stay tuned for an important update at the end of this episode on how the monks at West Flaterin recently updated their sales process. Change, it seems, is constant everywhere, even in Trappist monasteries. But for now, let's get started. From Earblitz, I'm Nate Carney, and this is Belgian Beer Quest. I began by seeking the holy grail of beers. What I found was something more incredible than I could have ever imagined. Like all great adventures, this story has twists, turns, journeys, and unexpected revelations. The end, I came to discover, was only just the beginning. My quest began on the living room floor, phone in hand crouched next to a warm fireplace in a Belgian house made of stone and wood. I was seeking two cases of West Flaterin 12, which is consistently ranked one of the best beers in the world by aficionados all over the world, or as many refer to themselves, by beer geeks, people who know their stuff when it comes to beer. Production of West Flaterin 12 is incredibly limited, and distribution is non-existent. If you want this beer, you have to drive to a monastery in the West Flanders region of Belgium to get it. It is one of a handful of official Trappist beers in the world and is the only one still brewed entirely by monks. The history of this beer is fascinating, the quality impeccable. For most Westerners, this beer is something akin to a legend. Why? Well, in a world where supply always rises to meet demand, where revenue and profits reign supreme, West Flaterin resists. They have something much greater in mind than just economics. And the legend begins with how you acquire West Flaterin 12. Simply put, you usually don't. Buying a case begins with a phone call. Yep, that's right. Getting someone to answer is like winning the lottery. You can't just call any old time. There are specific windows in which you can call, usually once or twice a week for about three hours each day. And operators are not standing by. As near as I can tell, there is a single monk with a single phone in a small room in a walled off abbey. Thousands will try to reach this monk. Only a few ever do. So the math breaks down something like this. Succeeding requires hundreds, that's right, hundreds of phone calls. The internet abounds with tales of people who have called 300, 400, 500 times just to get through, and some of them didn't. Either way, that's a lot of busy signals. So to succeed, you must be bold, you must be determined, you must be persistent, you have to keep your eye on the prize. It was time to try my luck. It was time to see if I could have a conversation with someone at West Flaterin. Step one, have a phone with rapid redial abilities. Check. Step two, visit the West Flaterin beer sales website to make sure I have the right number and the right day and time for calling. Check. Step three, have a positive attitude. Check, check. Step four, push the button. I began dialing just before 10 in the morning. The call window for West Flaterin 12 that day was from 9 a.m. to noon. 
Now, anecdotally, Westflaterin seekers, and there are some veteran Westflaterin seekers, have different strategies for when to call. Some prefer to launch immediately when the window opens, get out there, start getting busy. Others prefer to wait until later in the cycle when all the eager ones have either gotten through or worn themselves out and given up. Me? I was just going to keep going, even if it took me a thousand calls. I mean, I was ready to go. So I reached 20 calls, then 50, then 100. And I heard this sound over and over and over. Sometimes I heard a recorded Dutch voice talking to me about potential call rates if I were calling from somewhere like the UK or North America, which does happen. If the busy signal continued after this information, then I started again. By the 110th call, I had reached a sort of zen place where I was nothing but an empty mind with a thumb for dialing. Suddenly though, after the 128th call, I heard this sound. And then, as clear as any trumpet, I heard it. The unexpected magic of an actual human voice. Uh, Wednesday, please. Wednesday, 28th November, 1330. 13.30? I will be there. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. My words tumbled out. I gave the man on the other end of the line my license plate number. This is the most crucial piece of identifying information that you provide. Before the monks at Westflater and give you anything, they check to make sure the number matches. The voice on the other end gave me two dates for picking up the beer. I chose a Wednesday, and that was that. After 20 seconds, the call was complete. Woo, just got it. Only took me 128 calls this time. I can't tell you how good this feels. My, I'm smiling, my pulse is racing. It was just, it's, it's amazing. This is, this is sort of, an experience that you just don't have when you go buy beer at a store or really anywhere else. This is so cool. <laughs> awesome. Now, you might be wondering, why all the fuss? I mean, there are a lot of excellent beers out there, especially in places like Belgium or Germany. So what is it then that gets people so excited about West Flaterin 12? To help me answer that question, I turn to Briandon Carney. No relation, fortunately for him. Briandon knows as much about Belgian beer as anyone. He runs his own Belgian-based brewery, is an award-winning beer journalist, and is well-connected both in the Belgian beer community and globally. I wanted to know, why do beer geeks think West Flaterin 12 is so great? So my first question is, the more you get to learn about beer, Westflaterin keeps popping up as, as sort of the, almost like this holy grail, something mystical. Why is that? What is it that makes Westflaterin so special? I think there's a, quite a few reasons. One is uh, it's rare. So uh, I think in the world of beer geekery and those that are kind of seeking something authentic and beautiful, um, if something is more rare, it's um, more valued, and it is rare. It's a very small brewery compared to some other breweries in Belgium. Um, they have very limited production, and it is not an easy beer to get your hands on. 
Second reason is that it has um, won some accolades uh, among sort of the more uh, geeky of the beer community. So in in rate beer, I think four or five years, but perhaps even consecutively, it won best beer in the world, which really um, brought it sort of to the attention of the rest of the beer world and other parts of the world outside Belgium. And the third reason is that it's a very good beer and um, it's uh, it's kind of a, a dark uh, malt forward beer with uh, quite a lot of fermentation character, uh, quite balanced. Uh, it evolves well in the bottle and uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a beer kind of which can be really savoured as opposed to just smashed back. Briandon is right. Westflader in 12 is not a beer that anyone should smash back. This isn't your average American 3.2 light beer. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that Westflaterin is built for different purposes. You can see this in a lot of different ways. For starters, the alcohol content is high. Westflaterin 12 comes in at just a bit above 10% alcohol by volume. Now this is quite normal for strong Belgian ales, especially Trappist ones. It is also an ideal beer for pairing with foods. According to Brianden, because it is more of an intense beer, Westflaterin 12 would tend to go well with rich foods, like a dark chocolate mousse dessert or even stinky cheeses. So it's almost an after-dinner drink, or it could be. But more than that, this is a complex beer that is meant to be savored. Even for those who think hops are something that basketball players possess, you can tell that Westflaterin 12 is good and that it has a lot going on. According to Riandin, it is designed to be that way. It's a dark beer, and it is quite yeast forward. So the the flavors are based around, around those sort of ingredient influences. So you have this kind of dark malt, which will give you some elements of chocolate. It'll give you some um, sort of roasted biscuity flavors. They'll also add a dark candy sugar in the end of the boil mm. to essentially raise the gravity of the beer to make it higher alcohol without making the body too thick. So you'll have a little bit of that dark candy molasses treacle flavor. And then when you move to the yeast flavors, th this is where I think it gets the most interesting because you have this very characterful um, yeast which is used to, to spit out ester and phenol compounds which give you, you know, raisins, plums, mm. Uh, sometimes a little bit of apricot, sometimes a little bit of banana, uh, but very much on the dried red fruit uh, character for me. And also some pep pepperiness and some spiciness. And then in the background you have this kind of noble earthy hop character which is maybe maybe verging on like grassy or earthy. Um, and what they do then is they, they have this, this kind of full beer. You have some warmth and booziness from the beer itself, and then you do a re-fermentation in the bottle, which means effectively after you have fermented the beer, you take the beer and you add sugar and yeast again in order to in the bottle, so in order to create a natural carbonation um, and to, to, to fill out the body again. So then and you have some yeast sediment at the bottom when, when, that, when that drops out. The more I learned about it, the more I came to think that West Flater in 12 is a beer that seems exactly like something that would be brewed by hermit monks with a single-minded focus of achieving excellence decade after decade, like kung fu almost. So it is somewhat ironic then that the legend of Westflateren has grown exponentially thanks to the defining feature of the modern age, 
the internet. Brandon mentioned rate beer earlier and the role that it played in launching, or at least accelerating the legend of West Flatern as the quote-unquote best beer in the world. In short, rate beer was, and to some extent remains, an online, user-driven forum where beer geeks can display their knowledge and talk about beers they love, and of course, rate them. It's pretty easy to see how bias could creep into something like this. As Brianden says, ratings are often skewed toward beers that tend to be more extreme. And West Flatteren is strong, it's scarce, and it's really good. It's also complex and has an amazing story. But best beer in the world? It's hard to say. What's more, that's not really something the monks of West Flatteren asked for, nor is it what they're seeking. Again, let's hear from Brianden. I think it's probably relating to the kind of the human part of it. Um, you know, there's a human connection with with how the beer is made. It's not um, it's not made in massive, uh, you know, stainless steel vessels which are the size of a town um, in order to keep it as cheap as possible and sell as much of it as possible. It's made to uh, for the specific purpose of you know maintaining the the Trappist brewery, uh, making sure the monks have somewhere to sleep, making sure that they can finance their food, making sure they can do the repairs on their buildings, uh, making sure that the local charities around where they are in, in West Flathern, in the West Hook of Belgium, are looked after, um, and all those decisions are taken by by monks, you know, from going back to the early eighteen hundreds. The more I learned about the monks of West Flateren, the more I got the feeling that they could care less about ratings, or likes, or shares. In this age of rating everything, when companies and human beings agonize over, and often beg for, the approval of basically everyone, the monks stay steady. They focus on a bigger picture, like how excellence in brewing can help sustain a community. That, to me, was refreshing, and worth a trip. Even if I hadn't been able to win the beer lottery and secure two cases of West Flater in 12, I would have wanted to go anyway. And so, when pickup day arrived, I was ready. It was a lovely Northern European day. Low-lying clouds, slate-gray sky with hints of steel-gray, iron-gray, and, of course, coal-gray. Spitting rain swirled as I moved from the forested regions of Wallonia and it blossomed into full-on driving rain as I arrived in the long, flat expanses of Flanders. Now, Belgium is an interesting country on so many levels. It's small, about the same size as the American state of Maryland. It contains just a bit more than 10 million people. It was founded almost accidentally. The very short story is that some really excited opera-goers got all fired up and founded the country almost 200 years ago after a particularly stirring performance, and the subsequent history is worth a podcast series all by itself. Today, there are three official languages. Flemish, or Dutch, is spoken in the north, which is called Flanders. French is spoken in the southern part, which is called Wallonia, and German is spoken in a small part in the east. From the outside looking in, it can sometimes seem a bit odd that such a relatively small country in Europe should contain such diversity. But if you're driving south from Wallonia, northward into Flanders, you can literally see the difference between the Wallonian south and the Flemish north. 
The land flattens as if the earth is creating a runway heading straight for the North Sea. Consistent bike lanes appear. Cracked and broken roads just kind of go away. An overall air of tidiness and prosperity pervades the place. You see well-built red and gray brick houses, clean tiled roofs, clean shop fronts, gleaming warehouses, towering white windmills, neatly trimmed hedges and all sorts of cube and circle shapes. And then, as you near the abbey, you're in the country. We're talking real country, rural, farms and fields, groves of trees in the distance, ball cap wearing farmers and tractors hauling trailers filled with sugar beets. There are no billboards around, nothing fancy. You just drive slim two-lane roads past fields until suddenly you, and your GPS hopefully, spot a small black and white sign that says, St. Sixtus Abbey. That's it, the home of West Fletteran 12. You turn onto a one-lane road. A few minutes later, you're there. Man, Briandon was right. The Abbey is an unassuming place. The Abbey complex is small. The main Abbey is a simple building. It is mostly hidden behind 10-foot-tall ivy-covered red brick walls. A gift shop and a restaurant lie across the street where visitors can always taste West Flatern beer and bring a small quantity home if they're so inclined. A small playground sits outside the restaurant. But the day I was there, I found myself wandering toward the Pilgrim's Chapel, which is basically the only part of the Abbey complex that is accessible to outsiders. I thought it was fitting. I was a pilgrim of sorts, after all. So I wandered down a narrow, red-brick alley, which was flanked by tall brick walls. Sure enough, a small chapel waited around the corner, door open. The West and Pilgrim's Chapel is spare. It's sparse. It's stark. A single light bulb hangs from the ceiling. A long, polished wood bench wraps itself along one wall. There's a single statue, and a single candle burns. At its best, the room could maybe fit 20 people. It's cold, but it seems right. This is an austere place. It's beautiful in its simplicity, just like the beer. I sat on the bench in the Pilgrim's Chapel, and a thought drifted into my mind. What exactly was I seeking? I laughed. Well, I thought, I'm definitely seeking good beer, and I'm seeking to get it home safely. But the question persisted. Good beer gotten safely can be had from most any grocery store. Who makes a journey out of it, and why? A throttling motor roused me from my reverie. Cars were queuing up on the little street outside the abbey. I looked at my watch. It was time to get in line for the beer pickup. The West Flatern Beer Pickup Zone looks like something from a small country lumberyard in the Midwestern United States. It contains a small white building that is surrounded by a chain-link fence. A single gate opens to allow vehicles into a small circular driveway that is surrounded by green grass. 
the driveway is about large enough to hold 12 cars. And there are cars here from Belgium, of course, from the Netherlands. I've seen German cars before, British cars. There are little old ladies, older men, middle-aged men, uh, young men and young women, all different types of people lined up to pick this up. All right, time to move forward. My anticipation grew as I approached the pickup zone. Crates of Westflater and 12, containing hundreds of bottles, were stacked high beneath a sloping roof. One man helping to load crates and cars if needed. It's pretty much a self-service operation, actually, but he has a small orange forklift. I can see he has five pallets of beer stacked on that thing, so hundreds of bottles of beer, which is pretty cool considering the limited production that this place makes. Little signs, and soon enough, I'll be loading some in my own car, paying with my credit card, nodding at the man, and off I'll go. Another car moved forward into a small roofed area. A tall monk in gray robes stood behind a cash register. I took a deep breath and thought about the rules. Credit card only. Max two cases. Make sure your license plate is visible. And then, a few seconds later, it was my turn. I pulled forward, taking care not to scrape the very scraped up concrete pillars that flanked the sides of the driveway. I shut off the car, opened the trunk, and nodded at the gray-haired man who drove the forklift and loaded cases onto the counter. For the first time, I looked at the beer. It kind of took my breath away. The brown cases were plain and beautiful, sturdy wooden boxes with West and branded on the side, each containing 24 brown bottles of label-free, gold-capped dark beer. I nodded at the man and asked, Two? He smiled and replied, Yes. I didn't hesitate. I grabbed two cases and placed them very carefully in my pillow and blanket-laden trunk. Then I shuffled over to the cash register, inserted my credit card, and signed the receipt like the American I am. I glanced at the monk. We locked eyes for a moment, and he nodded. In that instant, I was fascinated. How did this man end up here, at this register, in this place? What was it that he was looking for? But I didn't ask him. Cars were idling behind me, and I had a new journey to begin. So I just said thank you, and hopped back in the car. And, just like that, I had done it. Now it was time to go home. The trip home was wonderfully uneventful. When I reached my house, I stored the bottles in a cool, dark place and thought again about the journey. The moments I spent in the Pilgrim's Chapel outside St. Sixtus Abbey came back to me. I thought again about quests and about beer-brewing monks and about the act of looking for something. It's funny, the very act of searching often leads you to places you never knew existed. In this case, the quest for West Fater and Twelve opened my eyes to a whole new realm of possibilities. There are so many cool places to see in Belgium, so many interesting stories, and, as I'm learning, so many excellent beers of all different sorts. West Flater and Twelve is one of those excellent beers. It may well be one of the tops. 
But it isn't a mountaintop, nor is it an outlier in the Belgian beer universe. If anything, it's a gateway, an invitation to learn, to explore, to grow, and to meet fascinating new people. It is also something to ponder while sipping a glass of West in 12, which makes the quest that much richer. Belgium is filled with brewers dedicated to excellence. It's going to be fun learning about more of them. As for West Flateren and the act of searching, I'll leave the final word to Briandon Carney. I think what I would say to people is, if you get a chance to taste the beer, please do. But but the the kind of the um, the search for it, uh, it has become so intense as to become. I don't know if it's worth the, some of the, the 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 sort of what people go through. I mean, for those in Belgium, take a visit. There's a small place where you can go in the day to, to taste the beer, see the place, see how unassuming and how kind of, um, in a very Belgian way, understated it is. But use the use the story and the influence of West Flatland and what they have done to inspire other breweries to go and out and find other beers, and you know, and, and sort of explore in that way. Don't just be hung up in one beer. You know, try and suck up as much of the culture here as possible. Wow, that is that is complex. Got coffee, vanilla, spices. To be fair, I had let off with a piece of dark chocolate, an orange spice dark chocolate. And my goodness, is the West Flatering compliment. There's apricots in there. It's strong beer, but not overwhelming. Better try this one again. All right, here's the big update. On June 14, 2019, the monks at West Flateren invited journalists and beer questers like me to the Abbey for an introduction to their new sales system. Simply put, the famous phone ordering system was retired in favor of an online store. Now this happened for a few reasons. First, as demand for West Flateren grew, so did the stress on the Abbey staff. It wasn't easy manning the beer phone, as you might be able to imagine, nor did it sit well with the monks to see so many unhappy people seeking their beer turned away. The new system will also aim to eliminate a lot of the famous gray market that dogged West Flaterin and is, in the words of the Abbey's press release, intended to be, quote, only accessible to consumers, not to professional buyers. End quote. The release goes on to say that anyone who doesn't play by the rules will be subsequently denied access to the online store, which roughly translated means we can track you better now, and if we find that you're selling to beer stores, then you're not going to buy any more beer. And though the loss of the phone represents an end of an era, the event was highly illuminating in many ways. For one, I got to go inside the Abbey walls, which was extraordinary. It was so rare. So, we've decided to offer you another very special West Flaterin episode that will allow us to learn more about the new sales system and to get a glimpse inside one of the most reclusive beer operations in the world. So we hope you'll join us the next time to hear more about West Flaterin and to hear about a day when a simple monk was treated like a rock star. This episode of Belgian Beer Quest is brought to you by Earblitz, a production of Advanti Pro GmbH. Our producers include master brewer Brett Hellenius, chief chemist Manuel Flatgen, and me, your tireless beer pilgrim and host, Nate Carney. 
Audio editing and mixing is also by Manuel Flatkin, who cloistered himself within the walls of the studio to make sure the sound was just right. The EarBlitz.com website was brewed, fermented, and barrel-aged by Laura Hirsch, Tavo Caballero, and Aaron T. Gregg. You can find us at EarBlitz.com or subscribe to Belgian Beer Quest on all platforms where you find your favorite podcasts. Special thanks to Brandon Carney for sharing his expertise and to the West and monks who made this journey possible. Please join us next time when we step inside the brewery of Saint-Fuyen and see how outstanding handcrafted Belgian beers are made. Until then, cheers to you. Cheers.